Heavenly Father, we know that before anything ever was, you were the great I am, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all that is, all that was, and all that will be, the maker and director of all history. You are the eternal God who was and is and is to come. You are never-changing, immutable in your divine being. You are the great, self-existent, self-sustaining, all-sufficient God. You need no one and you need nothing. We praise you for being Yahweh, the great I Am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses and Joshua and David, the God of your church. You called us by grace to be saved so that we might worship and serve you now and for all eternity. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us for not seeing and knowing you as the great I am. Forgive us for not serving as we've been called and equipped to serve, for missing your presence, your joy, and the faith you increase when we serve you in love. We are so thankful that you not only called us and saved us by grace, but that you call us to serve in your presence that we might experience your joy in the work you've given us to do. We thank you for being the great I am, for making yourself known to us even this morning as the God that you truly are. I pray, Father, that you would create in all of us a deep love for Jesus, that we might want to serve him well as he deserves. I ask that you would reveal to us the great work that he accomplished on the cross, the work to set sinners like us free, not only to rescue us from hell, but that we might become the faithful servants that you have equipped us in your spirit to become. Show us the gifts that you've poured out on our lives, on this church, that we might bless this church and this community by making disciples. We pray for your presence here this morning, Father. We pray, Lord, for all like-minded churches here in the South Bay, for the gospel that will be going out from every pulpit. We pray specifically this morning for Orchard Community, and I ask, Lord, that you would bless Pastor Todd with a sermon that compels his people to listen and respond. We pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in their church a great love for Christ that pours out, that blesses Campbell with the great work that you are doing. We ask above all else that you would be magnified here this morning, that we might not do religion but experience Christ, and that through the great word that you proclaim through this sinner, that we will be rightly moved. In Christ's holy name, amen. I was asked not too long ago, why, <laughs> why are our services so serious? Um, wasn't quite sure how to respond to that. I, I don't know what they're supposed to be if not serious. Um, they're supposed to be joy. They're supposed to be 
um, laughter at the appropriate time, certainly a great enthusiasm of song, but when we gather here, we're entering to the presence of a holy God. And if we're not going to be serious in His presence, I don't know what we ought to be. I hope that you don't take seriousness as drudgery. I pray that's not how you perceive it. John Calvin said this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looks at the face of God. I think Calvin's right on this. I think for us to understand how to go through life wisely, that means making good choices on a daily basis of how we spend our time, how we earn our money, the relationships that we engage in, how we raise our children, the service that we do for God as a believer. All this, I do believe, requires wisdom. And without it, we make a mess of our lives and we'll make a mess of those that are around us. Knowing God well and knowing ourselves well in light of who God is will bring wisdom to God's people and I pray to us as well. In Exodus chapter 3, if you're not there, please open your Bible to Exodus 3. Moses needs to make a decision. And it is a decision that will dramatically impact his life, his family, and as you know, tens of thousands of Israelites living in bondage in Egypt. The Israelites have cried out to God. 430 years, many years spent in slavery and oppression. And we, God tells them, as we saw last week, He saw their affliction He heard their cries. He knows their suffering because they are His people and God knows His people and that He has come down to rescue them. And then we read in verse 10 how He's going to do that. Look at verse 10 with me. This is God speaking from the burning bush to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now we know the storyline. Moses tried 40 years prior and he failed. He tried by his own might and his own strength. Moses is now 80, and he's a little wiser. He knows his limitations, that he can't do it on his own, and he now is getting a picture of God's plan to do it through him. Forty years later now, this burning bush, this flame of fire, God speaks to Moses from Mount Sinai. Moses responds, here I am. It's a response indicative of a servant. He says, here I am. I'm ready to serve. And then we're told that he takes off his sandals, which is a sign of a servant willing to obey. God said, don't come any closer, you're on holy ground. And so Moses is looking really good up to this point. And then there's a pause. And we're going to see it's a long pause. Once the mission is made clear... Verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. Moses has a few questions. We might say that there are a few objections to the plan that makes him the Savior. Unlike Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, before the throne room as we saw last week, Isaiah said to God, send me, I will go, before he knew what the mission was. Not so with Moses. 
Moses needs a little more revelation. Moses needs to know a little bit more about himself, a little bit more about God, and a little bit more about this ministry that he's being called to. And so by God's grace this morning with you, I'd like to, I'd like to look at those questions as well. Not just with Moses, but with us. Do we know ourselves? And do we know God? And do we know the ministry that we've been called to? So the three questions we will ask, and by God's grace, from this passage answer, one, who are we? And that's personal, who are you in Christ? Number two, who is God? And number three, how are we to serve? Now, if you find that third question strange, we're in trouble. If you're saying to yourself, what do you mean serve? I made a profession of faith. I got baptized. I go to church. Isn't that the deal? That's not the deal. That's not the calling. And that's not what we have been equipped to do. So I pray that you have the perseverance to get to that third question because I want you to hear it. I do. But first, let's ask about ourselves and then see about God. Number one, who are we? Moses is reluctant, rightfully so. He's being sent to uh, to Pharaoh, a man he knows well, to the most powerful country in the world to do something that he could not do on his own 40 years prior. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, on the one hand, you say, well, you know what? You're just pushing back against God. And on the other hand, we want to give Moses the benefit of the doubt. He failed already. Right? He was a prince in Egypt 40 years prior. And so he no longer is running headlong based upon his own strength and his own pride. And so he asked this question, who am I, Lord? Not the self-confident prince that he was, but the murderous fugitive now living as a shepherd, as a sojourner in a foreign land. He sees himself clearly and essentially he says this, God, there is no way I can do this. This task is beyond me. And Moses is speaking truth. It was beyond him. In fact, it was beyond any man's ability to do this great work of God. And that's the point. That was the point that God was making with Moses, and I pray he makes it with us this morning. Any work, listen closely, any work that God calls you or us to do as a people, God must do through us. Any work that he expects us to do or wants us to do. All God's work is spiritual work, which means your flesh can't do any of it apart from the Spirit working mightily and powerfully in you. So Moses is right. He's unable to do it. And God, did you notice? God doesn't disagree. I'm so thankful that God did not graduate from a modern-day therapy program. He doesn't try to build Moses' self-esteem, right? He could have, though. I mean, he could have said, you know, Moses, you're perfect for the mission. And in many ways, he had been groomed for it. Raised as a Hebrew, fluent in the language, trained in Pharaoh's house, the finest education in Egypt. He had spent now 40 years as a sojourner in a foreign land. He was a father. He was a husband. He was a shepherd. God could have said, you're perfect, Moses. Who better? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He gives a universal answer to Moses' question, who am I that I should go, by essentially saying this, it doesn't matter who you are. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are because I'm the one sending you and I'm going with you. Look at verse 12. He said, I will be with you. And so God takes the whole question and turns it upside down and says, the focus 
is not you, Moses. The focus is me. And he redirects the focus onto his powerful presence in Moses' life. Moses says, I can't do this. And God says, you're absolutely right. But I'm going to do it through you. God knew Moses was inadequate. Moses had proven himself inadequate. God knows that all sinners saved by grace are still inadequate. Listen, saved by grace but inadequate to do the work unless God does that work mightily through you by his spirit. Strange thing in evangelical circles. We make a profession of faith, we get saved, we get baptized, and we try to do it all on our own. And we do a miserable work. And we wonder why. God knew Moses and he knows you. You are called and you are equipped to do the work in his presence. He goes with us. And so this answer, God being present with us, is the answer you want to hear. Because it should bring to you as a believer great confidence and great joy. Now when I say confidence, that's not self-confidence. That's a Christ-centered confidence. You have Christ and you have the confidence in Him working through you. And that means, beloved servants, listen, no matter how overwhelming the task is for you, whatever it is that God has set before you to do, whether it be big or small, you have His presence. And so just as God was sending Moses to Pharaoh to do this mighty work of setting his people free, Moses, in knowing that God would be with him, had no reason to fear. No reason to fear. As Joshua would take the reins from Moses in a matter of years, listen to what God said to Joshua. Joshua 1.5 No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember those words. God gave our trepidatious Gideon the same confidence with his presence. Judges 6.16, he said to Gideon, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midian as, defeat Midian as one man. And then to the great prophet Jeremiah, which Jeremiah had to hear, Jeremiah, given that great and difficult ministry, God said to Jeremiah, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command. Well, you know Jeremiah is going to be in trouble doing that. And so God encouraged him with these words, Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Serving God faithfully always means God's presence. That's the glory of it. That's the joy of it. Jesus, when he gave the great commission to the disciples, right before his ascension in Matthew chapter 28, what did he say? Lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the promise Christ gives to his church. It wasn't just the 12. It's us. It's you. It's me. So we can serve with the same great promise that if understood, when you are serving God as God has called and equipped you to serve, You have his presence, and if you have the presence of God, Psalm 1611, you have what? The fullness of joy. In his presence, the psalmist says, is the fullness of joy. So if I serve, he's present. If he's present, I am joyful. Now we're getting it. I pray we're getting it. 
We're so reluctant to serve because we think it will, it will not be joyful to us. And it's the exact opposite. When I was a wee lad, a little boy, my grandfather used to visit us once or twice a year from Washington. Um, my grandfather was a, a John Wayne, World War II, very hard man. And we loved him. I mean, we thought this guy could walk on water. We called him Papa Dunn. That was his last name. He was a mechanic. He was a man's man. So everywhere he went, whatever he did, we wanted to be in his presence. He would go to take us to the flea market, to the day-old bakery, to the hardware store. We'd be in his garage working on his car. It didn't matter what he was doing. It didn't matter where he was going. If he said, come, we came because being in his presence brought us great joy. I look back now and I think some of those things I would never want to do now, but because I was in his presence, it did not matter. My beloved, it is the same yet infinitely greater with God in Christ. When you are serving, God is in your presence in a wonderful way. And you have the opportunity in your service to God to experience that joy, that joy that you work so hard to get in all the other things that you do. It's what makes serving so enjoyable. And I, and I do believe, and maybe I'm stepping out on a limb here, I think it's one of the reasons there's so little joy in the church today. We're so busy serving ourselves that we lack the joy of Christ. That if we were to stop and say, I, I'm going to not try to find my joy in my work or my school or my relationships or my hobbies or the entertainment, but I'm going to find it in my service to the Lord. Not a mere profession, not going to church, but serving God as He's equipped me to serve Him. And know that joy that the Bible speaks of. God is such a gracious and understanding God. He's looking at Moses. Moses is now shaking. He's trying to back out of this mission that's been given to him. And so God gives Moses a fulfillment sign. Look at verse 12. God says to Moses, speaking still from the burning bush, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So this is called a fulfillment sign. It's a, a future sign that God's going to do something in the future based upon Moses' service in the present. And so the question is, well, how is that encouraging? How is it going to encourage Moses in the moment that he's going to get the sign in the future? And God isn't so concerned about encouraging Moses at, at that moment. He wants to encourage him for the next 40 years. And so he gives him this fulfillment sign in order to train Moses to live, listen, by faith and not by sight, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. To be, he wanted Moses to be sure of what he hoped for and certain of what he could not see. And then he wanted him to walk this path for the next 40 years, not just taking Israel out of Egypt, but all the way to the border of the promised land. He wanted to know that God is the faithful God, the good God that he could trust he wanted him to put his faith in this Yahweh that he would come to know. Three months later, three months from this dialogue, every man, woman, child, and beast is back at Mount Sinai, and they are freed from Pharaoh's bondage, and they are worshiping the living God. 
And Moses must have thought, wow, he was right. He was right. We're all here. We're all together, and we're all worshiping God. And what great faith that must have encouraged him for the next 40 years of his service to the Lord. We're told in Hebrews eleven twenty seven that by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invincible, God himself. So first, I pray that you have an answer to the first question, who are you? You are a servant of the Most High if you are in Jesus Christ. You are called to serve, and if you serve, God will be present, and if he's present, you will be joyful, and that joy will increase your faith. Are you still with me? All right. So the the question then becomes for us, as reasonable adults, thinking clearly here, why should Moses trust this voice coming from the burning bush? Why should he trust him? We are surrounded by people and false gods who tell us all kinds of lies every single day. Are we not? We're surrounded by people who promise things that they will not fulfill on. So, why should Moses listen to this voice speaking from the burning bush? The question for us is, why should we listen to the same God speaking from his Bible? Why listen? Point number two, I pray you're with me. Who is this God that is speaking? Moses is no longer a prince. The mistakes that he made led to a very different life. But he still has a decent life. I mean, he's living in the house of Jethro, a priest of Midian. He's married. He has at least two children that we know of. He must be in reasonably good health. He's shepherding sheep. Not easy to do. He's in his 80s. He could end his years like this. This might not be a bad retirement plan. I mean, Everybody here moves down to Palm Springs. He's already out in the desert, right? So this might be a good deal for him. Why should he risk his life as an older man becoming the one that goes to Pharaoh? I mean, all we hear from our financial counselors now that as you get older, you need to be risk-averse. You need to make sure that you don't put all your money into, right? That's all we hear. So maybe Moses should step back and say, you know what? I'm going to decline the commission, God promised to be in his presence, and that should have been sufficient. Right? God said, I'm going to go with you. But Moses, and I'm thankful Moses asked because now we have the answer. Moses says, all right, well, who are you? I mean, who is this God that's speaking to me, that's going to accompany me to Egypt? I mean, after all, Moses is a reasonable man. He says, I tried this once, and I failed miserably. Now, I'm going to go back 40 years later, a murderous fugitive on the run, And I'm going to say, hey, by the way, I'm back, and I am the Savior. They're going to say, well, who is this God that's sending you? So Moses needs an answer. Look at verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? If they ask me, who was this God speaking from this burning bush? Is this the burning bush God? Is that what we should call him? No doubt Moses was thinking they would think too many hours under the Arabian sun shepherding sheep that the poor man has lost his mind. Moses knew his cultural context. It was a polytheistic culture. They believed in many gods, and each god had a name, and each god had certain powers. And they want to know, which one is talking to you, Moses? 
even up to that point in time, the God of the Bible had different names revealing the same God. The patriarchs called him El Elyon, God Most High. Pahad Yekshat, fear of Isaac. El Roi, the God who sees me. El Shaddai, which you know. God Almighty. El Bethel, God of Bethel. So they, they knew that God, even the real God, had different names given to him. So they were going to want to know who they were going to follow out of Egypt. I mean, we're going to take a great risk coming out of Pharaoh's hand. And so they needed to know who this God is. They said, what is his name? He said, well, is, is that the right question? It was then, because as most of you know, names then are not like names now. You know, we sit around, you know, a few weeks before the baby's born and we try to come up with the name. That's not how it worked then. Names defined characters. Names told stories about the people. It conveyed information about the character and nature. It summed up who that person was. So by asking, what is his name, they're really asking, what kind of God is this? What is he like? Revelation did he give you? Is he good? Is he powerful? Is he faithful? Will he follow through with his promises? Can we trust him? That's what they were asking. Look at the response in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Oh my goodness, hours and hours on this point, right? I I won't do it. I am Yahweh. In your Bibles, it's L-O-R-D, all capitalized lower font, Yahweh. Sometimes called the tetragrammaton. That's a nice fancy word. Earlier generations, by the way, knew God by this name. This was not the first time it's given to us in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, let's go all the way back to Seth. Seth had a son and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord Yahweh, God's name. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Laban, all called God by this name, Yahweh. We don't find it after Jacob. And so some argue it was lost. This name was lost for 400 years and now reintroduced to Moses. I am who I am, God says to Moses. Tell the people that. It is one of the more controversial statements in the entire Bible. It is certainly enigmatic. It is mysterious in nature, and it should be in part. It, it's not the, listen, it's not the English verb to be, is, are, was, were, am. It's not. That's not how we are to understand it, at least not fully. This is a name, Yahweh. It is a living, powerful, essential person. I am. I don't think it's wrong to consider it mysterious in that we would argue that we don't know people through and through. Even those you're closest to you don't know all the way through. How much more so will God be mysterious to us for all eternity as we grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Him? But simply because it's mysterious 
does not mean that he cannot be known at all. Unsearchable, yes. Ephesians 3, 8, Paul said this, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. But unsearchable, although mysterious, does not mean not knowable. Really important. So without going on for hours and hours, I I need to give you a few of the big, glorious pieces here of what this name means in the context of speaking it to Moses, his servant, and to us, his servants. First, it, it distinguishes God from all idols, from all other gods, all pagan gods of worship, by declaring himself the very being of all existence itself. It fundamentally is saying, God is saying, I am the creator and sustainer of all that is. So whatever idol you're worshiping, I made that. I'm in control of all that is seen and unseen. I am in control of all history, all events. Now we know this from the New Testament. Paul made this very clear in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of the second person of the holy triune God, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said of Jesus. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's first. In other words, this Yahweh is not only a living, active, personal, powerful being, he is sovereign over everything, including history, including the Exodus that he was about to do with his people. So he's in control. Secondly, this I am tells us that he's eternal. He's always been, and he's unchangeable. He is immutable, unfixed in his character and nature. Fixed in his character and nature. So he doesn't identify himself as the great I was, but I'm not anymore. Nor does he identify himself as the great I will be, but I'm not quite there yet. He is the great I am, eternal forever and ever, immutable as I am, will not change. And lastly, for our discussion today, it means that he is self-existent. You say, what does that mean? He's not dependent upon anyone or anything for who he is. He is self-existent self-sustaining Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means God has never experienced an unmet need or an unmet desire. He is satisfied in himself. That means Yahweh has never had an identity crisis. Yahweh has never had to go to a therapist. Yahweh, self-sufficient in himself, self-sustaining in himself, revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now to Moses and to us. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, in your Bible you can say Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh forever. And we are to remember him, this name, that we might remember what that name means. You see, if God is the creator and sustainer of all things, including human history, 
if he is the eternal, never-changing God, if he is self-existent and not dependent upon anyone or anything, then this is the God we want in our presence when we serve. It means, my beloved, that if he is in your presence and he's sovereignly in control of all things, that no one's bigger than him, no one's above him, no one can trump him. It means if he is eternal and never changing, you can trust him. He's trustworthy. He's not a fickle God. He's not going to send Moses in to see Pharaoh and then say, oh, I changed my mind. We can trust this God who sends us. And if he is self-existent, that means he cannot be bribed. He cannot be persuaded by someone to change his mind in a manner that would be detrimental to your service. In other words, when you set out to serve God in anything big or small, and this Yahweh, this great I Am, is in your presence, not only is there the fullness of joy as there should be, but you must know that you become that hyper-conquer that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Paul said we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-conquerors. Why? Chapter Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, you finish it. Who can be against us? He's sovereign. He's in control. He's eternal. He's never changing. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. What kind of God do you want on your side? That's the kind of God we want on our side. This great I am. He's committed to his people. His name guarantees your success in Jesus Christ. Whatever you're called to do, whatever ministry God has set before you, God's name guarantees its success because he is the great I am. When Jesus revealed himself to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 58, he took the divine name Yahweh. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am. And they didn't say, that's not grammatically correct. You must learn to conjugate your verbs. They, didn't stop. they said, we now must kill him because he was taking God's name. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus is God. They understood it. They got what he was saying, and therefore they wanted him dead. So, my beloved, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you serve him as we will see Moses serve him. If you remember that God is in control, and that God is trustworthy, and that God needs no one and needs nothing, that this is the God that's on your side, then you know what? You can follow him. If you know the great I am in Christ, and you know him to not be a liar, for God cannot lie, and God says to you that in my son I am with you, then you can be confident, not in yourself, but confident in Christ. You can remember this great I am as you live day by day, moving forward in your faith, serving him faithfully. This is what he longs for in his church, to have a people that love him so much that we walk that wonderful walk of faith, knowing that he's present. So many in the church and maybe some of you have encountered this living God, and unlike Moses, you said, no, I will not serve. I'll, I'll, I'll get baptized, and I'll go to church, but I'm not going to serve. Some consciously 
But I don't think that's the primary reason. In our cultural moment, I think many evangelical professing Christians do not serve because they've been caught up in this culture of busyness and self-interest. We are such a busy people. Where are we going? And so much of our days, so much of our time is spent on self. But the servant is called to serve God and others. And you can't have these two at the same time. The problem with this, I'll take Christ but not service, is that it's not biblical. It's not even remotely biblical. God calls you, saves you into ministry. You are saved and then sent. God called Moses to send Moses. You are no different. You say, well, I'm not Moses. No, you're not. Praise God. You're made in the image of God, and you have a name too. And the great I am has revealed himself in Christ. You have been saved in Christ, and he's sending you. One commentator put it like this. It struck a chord in me. Every follower of Jesus Christ receives two callings, first to salvation, then to service. I, I don't want to make it complicated. Every Christian, two callings, salvation and service. You say, well, I have the first one. What is the second one? Do you know what that is for you? Last point, I pray you're still with me. Look at verse 16. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Verse 16, go and gather. So he's now giving instructions, God speaking from the bush to Moses. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, quote, I have observed you and what have been done to you in Egypt. God now speaking what he's seen. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, to the Hittites, to the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice because Moses wondered otherwise. They didn't listen the first time. Why are they going to listen now? He makes that promise. So Moses is the first to go to the elders. It literally means bearded men. And I like that now that I have a beard. So he's go to the bearded men and tell them three things. Number one, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says that he has appeared to me. Number two, Yahweh has seen your afflictions. And number three, he promises now to take you out of slavery and bring you into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be delivered. This is not the end of your story. In fact, we know Jeremiah said 29, 11, that God had plans for a hope and a future for his people. And so first and foremost, my beloved, as servants of Jesus Christ, we have the same message, do we not? The same message, what is it? That God has come down in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. That God has seen the affliction of his people, the sin and death that we are under. And that God has a plan too for us in Christ. That's to deliver us out of slavery, out of sin, and out of death, and into his eternal promised land, and into his presence. And so as servants, minimally, we must see that we have a message to give. Moses had a message to take back to the elders and then to Pharaoh. We have the same message. It's not out of physical bondage. It's not out of the land of Egypt. But it is spiritual and it is powerful. Look at verse 18. 
They will listen to your voice, the elders, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And so we get a, this is the trailer for the next several chapters. I mean, this is it. This is the preview. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time because we're going we're to unpack this over the next several weeks. But I want you to know the repeated request again and again. Pharaoh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, three days into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to our God. And you say, well, was he lying? Certainly they were going to go for much longer than three days. It wasn't. He wasn't lying. God wasn't lying and Moses wasn't lying. Three days was idiomatic. It was a Hebrew idiom that meant a permanent departure. Pharaoh got that. It was kind of a, a, new, a near eastern form of diplomacy. It would be something like you saying, please hand me the remote, when what you're really saying is, I'm going to change the channel, right? Or if you said something, how much money do you have on you? What you're really asking is, I need to borrow some money from you. So when Moses says, we want to take a three-day journey, he's really saying, we're leaving. Pharaoh understood this. And that's why he would not let them go. Otherwise, you say, well, why, why would it take 10 major plagues to let them go three days? He got it. It wasn't three days. They wanted to leave permanently. Pharaoh understood that this would compromise his standing as king. Remember, they weren't just going to go out for three days in the desert. Look at they were going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. It's now his name being used. We know who this God is. But Pharaoh has a problem because Pharaoh thought himself a god. Pharaoh thought himself the god of Horus, which was part of the Egyptian pantheon. And Pharaoh believed that when he died, he'd become the god Osiris. And so if, if Pharaoh said yes to Moses and let all these Israelites go into the desert and worship, sacrifice to Yahweh, then Yahweh is bigger than Pharaoh. Not only would it ruin his economy from slavery, set up an enemy outside of his borders, but it would destroy the religious and sociological philosophy of the Egyptian polity. So he would not let them go. That's why you find him so stubborn. He hardened his own heart. God hardens his heart. And so what is, what is required? God must use his mighty hand to set his people free. He does wonders, same word miracles, you can translate it, and not so much to display his glory, but to punish, it says to strike down Egypt, to unleash his power upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian nation, so that they would what? Finally, expel the people from the land. We'll see after the last plague, they're saying, get out, go. They couldn't get them out fast enough. So that's the preview. I hope it's, it left a little taste. So, all right, we'll come back for the next few weeks then, because this is a good story, and it is. There's something here, though, in verses 21 and 22 I want to show you, and then I'll close, because this is often brushed over, but the tie for us is extraordinary, and I found it um, both encouraging and convicting in my own life. Not only is God going to bring them out of Egypt, but he's going to do it in extravagant fashion. Look at verse 21. 
I will give this people favor. He's talking of the Israelites. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. So God does a supernatural work on the hearts of the Egyptians. We, we knew from chapter 1 what they hated them, they dreaded them, and then they wanted to kill them, right? That was part of the, the genocide plan. And now here we're told that they're going to be giving them gold and jewelry and clothing. You say, well, why would God do that? First and foremost, it was a promise that he made to Abraham. God is faithful. God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 14, that when you leave Egypt, you will leave with great possessions. So it magnified his fidelity as a God who can make a promise and keep the promise. But we must remember, and I established this in my first or second sermon, that in rebelling against God, they declared war against God. And the battle lines is not, was not just Israel and Egypt or Moses and Pharaoh, but Satan and God. And God wants to put an exclamation point on the victory of this battle. And so the most powerful nation in the world is plundered by women. Do not miss that point. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but that made the point that God wanted to. God won. God always wins. Now, he's going to magnify his glory in a most extraordinary way here. Most of you know that the gold and the silver that was taken out of Egypt was used to build the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle was the tent. That was the meeting place between God and man. That was the place where God would dwell and commune amongst his people. And so all the gold and all the silver that came out of Egypt was used to build the sanctuary that they would meet with God. Centuries later, the Babylonians, coming back to the promised land, were sent back to Israel with gold and silver and precious jewels to rebuild the broken temple of Solomon. Centuries after that, now listen, so this is not just a good history lesson. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, would set many captives free and pour out the precious gifts, gold, silver, and diamonds and jewels upon his people. He, through his sacrifice upon the cross, by dying for your sins and taking your sins that you might have his righteousness. He leads us out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery. He saves us, and then he pours out his gifts upon us. You say, well, I'm not dripped in gold. I don't have silver in a bank account. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's all those saved by grace. And then we're told, the latter part of Ephesians 4, 8, and he gave gifts to men. He said, well, what are those gifts? You know the gifts, they're the spiritual gifts. They're the gifts that come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They're the gifts that are given to man by God that we might become the people, the body of Christ that we're supposed to be. By overcoming the works of the devil on the cross, as God overcame the works of Pharaoh, and then sending his people out with these gifts, so did Christ do that by sending to us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, to come in us, to dwell in us, that we might have his presence, that we might have his joy, that we might have the faith, and have the gifts. And I, I, I would love to do 
a good exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12. Do that on your own. But listen, these gifts are given to every person saved by grace. So you cannot say, I don't have any. You have at least one, and I'd argue a lot more. And the gifts were given not for your own use. The gifts are given for the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 Paul says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The gifts are given to enable you to be the servant you were called and equipped to be. So we're right back to the commission given to Moses and the commission given to you. So I want to circle back to the first question. Where are you on this? Where are we as a church when it comes to knowing and exercising the gifts given to us by God to serve, to bless, to mature the body of Christ. I believe many of us are lacking the very real presence of God. We're lacking the joy and the faith that comes because we are not serving Him faithfully. I believe that we are not remembering well his sovereignty and his trustworthiness and his self-existence, that he is our God following, we're following him, he's leading us, that we don't remember that well because we still live so much of our life on our own. We don't like to serve others. We don't want to serve God. We want to serve ourselves. The Bible says, my beloved, 1 Corinthians 7.23, you are a bond servant, bought with the price, the price of Jesus' blood. You can't claim Christ and not serve. I don't want to be harsh on this. I love you so much, but I want you to hear this. You cannot claim Jesus Christ as Lord and not use the gifts given to you to serve in that capacity. If you claim Christ, you do not follow Christ, and you're not a Christ follower, no matter what your lips say. I'll ask you a few questions, and I will close. In a church full of servants of Jesus Christ, why do we hear so oftentimes Christians talking so much about careers and so little about disciple making? The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Christ had told us, not become rich and powerful and prestigious in your position at work. Why so much emphasis in the evangelical church today on education, degrees, money, and not on the home? Husbands serving their wives by loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Wives serving their husbands by being obedient in all things. Why is there such an emphasis, my beloved, on entertaining our children and not serving them by raising them in the faith? I hear parents talk about these grand things they're going to do for their kids, vacations, movies, playtimes, and what about training? So much talk in Christian circles about the latest gadgets, the latest movies, the latest trend and so little about orphans and widows, so little about the poor. These are the very things that we're called to do. Why so much time on social media and Facebook and not time face-to-face sharing the gospel with the lost? 
My beloved, I believe that we're like the young Moses. I believe that many of us are unwise. We are certainly distracted and captivated by the things of this world. Too occupied, I believe, to be captivated by our Savior. Because if Christ gets your heart, service will not be a problem. This is not a religious decree, go serve. This is an imperative that comes out of love. If Christ has you, you will want to serve him every moment of every day until he calls you home. When you came to a saving grace, whether you know it or not, you stood before a burning bush. Yahweh, the great I am. He called you by name out of the darkness. And if you have professed Christ, you said, as Moses did, here I am. And if you took off your shoes, then that means you got baptized. So you entered into this great faith, this great power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Christ poured his gifts out upon you. You. I want you to think, don't look around. You have gifts given by God in the Spirit. So if I were to right now hand you a piece of paper, it's a hypothetical, don't panic, but if I were, and I were to say, please write down, number one, please write down your gifts, would you know them? Would you know them? Write down num- number question number two, do you know how you're supposed to use these gifts to serve the Lord? And probably the most pointed question of all, number three, are you? Are you? Are you using the gifts as God has called you to use them? What would that sheet of paper look like for you? Would it be blank? Would it be missing huge sections? Would your answers fall short of the great I am? Or would you be like Moses? And you say, I am not able. And hear God to say to you, of course you're not. But I am able through you. By trusting God, His presence, His joy, His sovereignty, His fidelity, His character. You can serve Him today, tomorrow, and forever. Remember years He gives you. I want to close with Matthew 24 to make sure you understand this is not optional. This is not a suggestion from the Lord. You are either serving the great I am Yahweh or you're serving the great I am yourself. It's one of the two. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, when, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Remember we talked at the very beginning, the great quote from John Calvin, are you wise? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Listen closely with all your might. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus said, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is no small matter, my beloved. You cannot leave here not knowing your service to the Lord. 
I pray that you have been rightly convicted and rightly encouraged as I was this week. And I pray that God would equip you not to waste any more time. That you would ask yourself today, how might I serve the Lord? Jesus Christ gave his blood in service to me that I might live. He is worthy of our service. He's the great I am. He's Yahweh. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there was no greater service revealed to mankind than you sending your son to die upon the cross. He is the servant of all servants. And in bearing the penalty for our sins and setting us free from the darkness of sin and death, you have called us into a kingdom of light, into a kingdom of power. You've called us into a kingdom of servants who you gather together in beautiful churches just like this that we might be stronger together than we are apart. And then you've given us gifts not of gold and silver, but of the Spirit to exercise gifts in the church and in so doing, grow the body of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious with us. Help us, Father. Convict us in the areas that we're not serving when we know we ought. Reveal to us, Lord, the the immeasurable number of gifts you've given to us. And then take those gifts for your own glory and, and have them opened here in our presence, here in the community of Cambrian Park, that this, that this still dark place might become a brilliant light for you. We pray, Father, that you would show us that you are Yahweh, that you are the great I Am. And that when we serve you, you're in our presence. And if you're you're in our presence, there is truly the fullness of joy. Stop our stupidity from going after all the things that will not satisfy. And show us, Lord, that in you, in service to you, we have joy everlasting. Oh, Lord, give us a glimpse of the eternal life. Because that's what it will be like forever and ever. Help us to do that now, I pray. I ask so that you would bless my brothers and sisters with this text, bring greater understanding than I was able to preach, bring greater conviction than the Holy Spirit was able to do just now, that you might be glorified in us. In Christ's name, amen.